Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is Jesus as the Lamb of God. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your knitting needles or crochet hook and join us. I'm Pastor Amanda Zenzelo, and I serve as the pastor of Central Lutheran Church in Northeast Portland, Oregon. And I'm Dawn Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. Okay, let's go back, (laughs) way back in the way back machine. (laughs) Exactly. Where does this question come from? (laughs) This question comes from an email that we received in the summer of 2017. No, those many months ago. Many, many, many months ago. From one of our most avid and... Delightful listeners. Indeed. Mm -hmm. From Wendy. So, Wendy, we did not forget your question. We did not. We are getting around to it, baby. So, here we are. We are going to take a look at this. And as we were reviewing the email that we received from Wendy, I had to wonder if it was so much a question or if it was more of a comment. Sure. A general topic. A general topic or just an idea. We had been talking about on the podcast the week before, perhaps, about Jesus and the sacrificial. Why did they kill Jesus? What mm-hmm. was up with that? And Wendy asked about Jesus as the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. Why does Jesus have to die in order to take away our sin? Why do we use this phrase, the Lamb of God? And so I put that as a possible topic on our possible topic list. And it now, is there. Now almost 200 episodes later, <laughs> we're getting we're, around we're to getting it. getting around to it. Totally. Thank you for your patience, Wendy. Okay. And then you said this to me that this is an intimidating topic for you. So let's start there. Yeah, it's an incredibly intimidating topic, primarily because this is one of those topics that delves into something called systematic theology. Okay. And in my opinion, which we're on a podcast, so folks are getting my opinion. That's totally fair. Different than a sermon, right? In my opinion, systematic theology, the easiest way to understand what that is, is to say it's the science class of theology. Okay. It's the kind of class that tries to organize and systematize and put into little boxes the things that we understand about something that is not understandable. Mm -hmm. And I am not a very effective systematic theologian. This is not my strength. And I am much more comfortable talking about the spiritual disciplines or practices or anything to do with kind of the esoteric woo-woo stuff. How do you you quantify things? Having just had a child go through a science fair, there's Mm -hmm. not much about religion to me that seems to be effectively quantified. Except that there are books and books and thousands of years of study on exactly this kind of thing. Sure. With big fancy words and... Lots of things that you can test someone on. So I had my two obligatory courses in systematic theology in seminary, and they go into things like, what do we actually think about what the second coming is, and how is it going to happen? How do we understand the idea of sin, and what is sin, and how do we wrap our heads and our words around the notion of sin? Some of these theological concepts that you'll have questions about. So what is the Trinity Mm -hmm. and how does the Trinity work? Or what does it mean that there is an end time? Or how is it that we are saved through the act of Christ? Systematic theology tries to look at that and give explanations for it. Okay. 
And it's a good stuff. It's really good stuff. Seems useful and helpful. Very much so. My brain just has a hard time with it. Okay. So for me, taking this particular topic on is really a challenge and intimidating because I'm probably going to get some of it wrong as we're talking. (laughs) And if there are systematic theologians out there listening, this is going to be a great gotcha episode Mm. to prove, you know, like in our beautiful world right now, we're always so grace-filled towards strangers on the internet. Oh, yes. So it's been one of those that I've pushed off and not responded because I'm probably going to get some of this wrong. So I'm going to ask for some grace. And if there are listeners out there who know better than I do about atonement theory, particularly in regards to the Lamb of Christ and the connections to the Paschal Feast and its Hebrew origins, please feel free to correct me by joining us on another podcast where we address it together. Sounds fair. Okay, I'm going to be a little naive then in saying, at least from my perspective, it kind of seems fairly straightforward. So I'm curious where we're going to go with this today. (laughs) Fair enough. Let's start with where does it show up, the idea of Jesus being the Lamb of God? Is this a gospel thing? Where? It shows up in lots of different places throughout the Greek scriptures. One of the quick places to find it is coming out of the mouth of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John early, early, where John the Baptist points across the river and says, see, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Okay. And so John the Baptist, right off in the first chapter, uses that phrase as he points to Christ and introduces John the Baptist's followers to Jesus. Okay. Now, that, remember, because the Gospel of John was written latest of the New Testament books, right? So that was written around the 90s. Paul had been writing, it's in some of Paul's writings earlier in Christian history than that. And it also comes very strongly, you see very, very strong lamb imagery in the book of Revelation Okay, with John of Patmos writing that. And that's where a lot of the difficulty, I think, in unpacking this image comes out of the book of Revelation because it's a very strange symbol. It's a lamb, but it's a lamb with a whole lot of eyes, and there's some weird stuff in there. But it's the book of Revelation, so it's really weird stuff. It's apocalyptic writing filled with imagery and filled with meaning beyond meaning under meaning, and so it gets really, really confusing. And so we can get this kind of symbolic language all wrapped up and mixed up with the symbolic language that we're using, and it gets messy. Yeah, because it not just only shows up in Scripture and in the Bible, but we use it in the service a lot. We use it in the service a lot, a lot. And it's because it's in the scripture that we use it. So we use it in the beginning of the Gloria for the Lamb who is slain has begun his reign. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. We sing that in our liturgy. We sing after we've blessed the table. And as we are coming forward for communion, we might sing the Lamb of God. That's mm-hmm. what it's called. The Agnus Dei in the actual ordo, the actual liturgy, and that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. And so it's a phrase that we are familiar with because of our liturgy, even if we don't understand its biblical grounding, its story grounding, much less its theological baggage. Okay. I don't know much about the theological baggage yet, 
But let's get to the imagery itself. Mm -hmm. The Lamb of God, or at least the Lamb, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of that imagery in the Bible itself. Absolutely. And the sacrificial lamb, I'm assuming, goes back to the rituals that they would have to do to return to whatever. Like, doesn't Mary have to make a sacrifice and somebody else has to sacrifice to get back into good graces, for lack of a better term? Absolutely. And so this goes back to the temple and the Hebrew practices around animal sacrifice at the temple in order to restore relationship with God. And we see throughout the Hebrew scripture multiple opportunities for animal sacrifice. And so the origin of the term scapegoat Mm -hmm. is this idea that a pure goat would be brought forward and then we would name all of the community breaking things that were happening and we would name it all and we would place it on the goat and then run the goat out of town Hmm. and so all the things that were evil and wrong that we had done would leave town because it would go out with the scapegoat it would leave with the goat or the animal would be slaughtered and then that blood would be a purification a way to say so the things that we have done wrong we have given into this life and we have sacrificed this life sure And so then we're heading towards the theological concepts of what is the purpose of sacrifice? What is the purpose of living sacrifice? And I don't know enough around Hebrew temple culture. I could probably speak to it from a Christian perspective, but I would rather hear it from someone of the actual faith practice. Um, Do you think we're having a hard time with this only because we've moved beyond that, at least in modern contemporary Christian society? We don't tend to sacrifice animals anymore. Right. We've moved away from that. And so have the Jewish people, right? There's no temple. So there's no more blood sacrifice of the animals in that way. So the lamb, of course, falls back to the story of Exodus. Okay. It goes all the way back to the Passover and spreading the blood of the lamb on the lintel so that God might pass over the house and the firstborn of the household not being killed in the final plague before the Hebrew people were released from Egypt. And so we know that in Bethlehem, that's where the sacred lambs that would be without blemish, very carefully raised Mm -hmm. by the priest shepherds outside of Bethlehem, that they would create the lamb that would be sacrificed at Passover Mm -hmm. in the temple as the symbolic gesture within that festival. Yep. And what the Greek scripture tells us of the crucifixion of Christ is then that Christ dies at the time when the lamb would be slaughtered in the temple. Okay. And so there's a clear line of connection being drawn from our gospels to that ritual. Sure. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Mm -hmm. where those sheep would come from. Wrapped in the same swaddling clothes. Wrapped in the same kind of swaddling clothes that the shepherds would have wrapped a newborn lamb in so that it would not kick and cause a blemish on it. Mm -hmm. And then that he dies at the same hour on the Passover that the lamb would be slaughtered at the temple with the idea being that then God will pass over our sins that somehow Christ becomes the final scapegoat is one term used for an atonement theory around this. 
So this is where this starts coming down to atonement theories. And this is where I start getting really anxious that I'm going to bugger it up. Okay, because up to this point, at least from my perspective, it's pretty straightforward. Seems pretty clear. Now, how do we mess it up? Because we're human. Yeah, well, because now we're talking about something that looks like divine child abuse. Oh, really? Well, God sent God's only son for him to be slaughtered like a lamb so that our sin could be taken away? Like, why does God need another person to be killed in order to forgive our sin? Why can't God just forgive our sin? So, Or because Jesus was fully divine that it doesn't matter because he wasn't really sacrificing anything because he knew it was, but I mean, then is does, this what we're getting at? Right, exactly. Okay. So then, but if, if Jesus is fully divine and wasn't really sacrificing anything, then was it a sacrifice to begin with? Okay. Or was it just some kind of weird ploy and messed up abuse of God's people and our twisting of emotions? Like that doesn't sit real well if Jesus mm-hmm. didn't actually sacrifice something, right? But if God wanted it to happen, then that's a messed up God parent figure, screwy mm-hmm. ick, right? So there's so many ways that atonement theory and how we understand the act of the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus that gets really, really, really messy. Okay. And when we talk about the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, then we start talking about atonement theories. And then we start getting into this messy stuff that's really difficult to understand and can send you down theological pathways that can be abusive and theological pathways that aren't really able to be understood. It's just difficult. That's what I would say. You know, Wendy said, I really don't understand this idea that Jesus had to be this lamb that was slaughtered for my sin. And I still don't understand that. It's totally okay to not understand that because it's a really difficult, strange and odd topic. In my reading, in my systematic classes, and in trying to come to some kind of place with this idea. Yeah. I have never found a way to fully reconcile that Jesus died so that I could be free. I believe it. I live into it. I rely on it as my source of grace. I was going to say, do you cringe then every time it comes up? Because it comes up a lot in the actual service. I... Sometimes cringe when singing it. Okay. Because it's difficult. And it's still unsettled within me because I don't know how to articulate it in a way that feels like it holds integrity with the God that I understand and integrity with the message of God. Now, it holds integrity when I think about Jesus had all the power in the entire world and chose not to just smite down. The God that I worship and that I serve and that I represent in the world is not a God that would take that all-powerfulness and just smite people because they were doing stupid things. Okay. Like, the God that I worship gives us free will, which means we're going to do stupid things. And 
Jesus, to me, wanted to show another way other than the stupid ways we have of living in the world. Jesus came and showed us how to love indescribably, to hold boundaries, but hold accountability, and to show that systems can be broken and systems can change, even violent systems, when we consistently stick to a message of love and hope and nonviolence. That's a God that I can stand alongside of. And so in that, my brokenness can be forgiven. I don't even know how to say that. Like how do, you know, the act of Jesus choosing love over hatred and over violence frees me to choose differently now. Okay. And if that's taking away the sin, taking away my pathway to sin, or forgiving me for the ways in which I don't do that, and showing me again how to turn around, repent, turn around, try a different way, Mm -hmm. and go back to that way of loving, boundaried, nonviolent, make the world a better place every single time. That's how I struggle my way through this kind of conversation. Well, then doesn't that put the onus on Jesus's choice, not necessarily as God being a terrible parent to sending his child to die from the start? Yes. That because he was also fully human, he had the choice to go either way? Exactly. Okay. And that that then takes away this kind of struggle with the idea of divine child abuse. (laughs) Oh, man, that just every time you say it. I know, right? I mean, it's upsetting, but that's exactly what's in this systematics book that I brought up here into the recording studio, reading through these multiple atonement theories, like none of them settled within me, even 17 years ago when I was doing my studying, because they're all unsettling. And Mm -hmm. and maybe that's part of the point. Atonement is unsettling Mm -hmm. because it has nothing to do with us and we can't understand it. And here we have this beautiful creature created by God that is losing its life. And maybe that should just be unsettling. Mm -hmm. Maybe we shouldn't be able to understand it, but live into the promise somehow that this changes everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. My last question to you is this then. Do you ever preach on it outright in church because it sometimes shows up in the Gospels or is it something you will shy away from? I shy away from it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I will say that even in my doctorate, there was a point where we had to write our 10 or 12 sermons from across the whole gamut of their stories. And I had two more left to choose. And I just told a classmate of mine, go pick two of them for me. I don't care which two you pick. Mm -hmm. I picked the ones that I knew I wanted to write and then just go put my name up for a couple others. That's dangerous. It is. And one of them was in Revelation and it had to do with the lamb imagery. And I struggled so hard writing that particular sermon because it's just a difficult image for me. Sure. And I would say it's probably one of the least strong out of that entire book. You can read it if you want to, but it... It's capable Not my best work. <laughs> Not my best work. Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't tend to lean into preaching on this. I could lean into teaching on it maybe in a class if I had enough time to do some serious research and some good, solid prep time for that. Maybe I would feel like I could do an education course around it. Okay. Because there is beautiful metaphor and imagery and a huge, rich tradition to dive into. There's so much there. 
And I think that's part of what is intimidating about this is that it feels like I could spend forever. I could spend months Mm -hmm. researching this and still not adequately be able to speak into it with any kind of authority. And since I don't really love being the expert and authority when it comes to this kind of stuff, I'd rather create conversation and Mm -hmm. do that kind of thing. It's a tough topic. So I will probably continue to avoid it in my preaching. Absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you, Pastor Amanda, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about Jesus as the Lamb of God. I look forward to sitting down with you another week on another topic. As do I anything other than this topic. (laughs) (laughs) And cross it off your list, my friend. (laughs) And thank you all for sitting through this. If you have a passion for this image and have a relationship with this image that you would love to share with us, I would be fascinated to hear it. You can always reach out to us at podcast at centralportland.org. Reach us on Facebook, or if you would like to, it would be great to have a review on iTunes. And remember, until we are back in your ears again, God loves you no matter what.